I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me once again to the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> We're in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36 this morning. Uh, this is Luke's account of the transfiguration of Jesus, which is actually recorded in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I think that tells us something about its importance. They, the apostles in the early church understood that this was a momentous event in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to give our attention to it today. But before I read God's word, let's pray and ask for his help today. Lord, we thank you for your word, uh, which is living and active and Holy Spirit. We ask now that you would open our eyes to see and behold and gaze upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that by seeing his glory, Lord, we would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And I pray for anyone who has not seen the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that today you would open their eyes for the first time to see his beauty and his majesty. We ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28, I'll remind us that this is... God himself speaking to us today as we read his word. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. A few months ago, I uh, stopped at one of the fishing stores in Ligonier, and I got to talking to one of their employees who had just returned from a fishing trip to Alaska. It was one of those uh, fishing trips where they fly you into a remote area, and they, they drop you off, and they leave you there, in the Alaskan wilderness. And as this fellow's telling me about this, this story, he gets his phone out and starts showing me pictures of the local wildlife, including the, the bears that uh, set up their fishing spots right alongside of them while they're fishing on the stream. And as he's describing all this to me, I was thinking in my mind, this, this sounds nuts. I mean, this sounds absolutely crazy when you stop and you think about it. You're, you're, you're going to an area you know nothing about. Uh, you're going into the Alaskan wilderness, and you're getting left there 
And you're really, your only hope is that this guide knows what he's doing. Um, I don't know if I mentioned that he was, of course, being dropped off with a guide while he was fishing. So a lot relies upon the reliance of this guide who's going to take you during this trip fishing in the wilderness. Um, a, a lot rides on getting the right man for the job, doesn't it? Because you are literally entrusting your life into the hands of this man. I think in a lot of ways, the call of discipleship is just like that. Uh, The Lord Jesus has just revealed himself to his disciples as the Christ of God, the Messiah. and And then immediately he called his disciples to entrust their very lives into his hands and to begin following him. And perhaps one of the questions looming in the minds of some of the disciples, and perhaps it's a question looming in the minds of some here today, is Jesus the right man for the job? Does he he have the qualifications to be the Christ of God? And and if I entrust my life into his hands, will, will he see me through life and into eternity? I want to show you today that the story of the transfiguration is placed here in the Gospel of Luke to give you an emphatic yes to those questions. Because here we are given given a glimpse of the, the divine glory of Jesus Christ. Moses and Elijah, two great representatives of the Old Testament and the Law and the Prophets, stand here in this story to testify that all of the promises And the judgments of God made in the Old Testament find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we have the the Heavenly Father himself speaking in this passage saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. I think when we look at this passage then, it it is very clear that Luke, he, he wants to link the call of discipleship to the transfiguration of of Jesus. And we see that in the text. We didn't read verse 27, but if you look back to verse 27, Jesus concluded his call to discipleship saying that there were some standing there who would not taste death until they saw the kingdom of God. And that sort of leaves a question hanging there in the air. Well, when did they see the kingdom of God? When, When did this take place? Well, I think Luke is connecting it to this passage that we're looking at today. And he says, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And so I think what happens on this unnamed mountain is, first of all, meant to be understood as a revelation of the kingdom of God and a revelation of the glory of the king of that kingdom. Now we know that when we read the Gospels, wherever Jesus Christ is, there the kingdom of God is present. And we also know that Jesus ushers in and manifests his kingdom in the Bible in stages. Now Jesus has already come, and he's come preaching the arrival of the kingdom, the presence of the kingdom. He has, he has already uh, manifested the characteristics of that kingdom and proclaiming good news and pushing back the forces of darkness and in healing the sick and raising the dead. 
And of course, Jesus' kingdom and the glory of that kingdom would be even further manifested when, when Jesus would go to the cross. And when Jesus would die and, and three days later rise again from the dead and set his people free from sin and Satan and death. But then we, go, we can go beyond the Gospels. We can go to the book of Acts. And the, the whole book of Acts is really explaining the manifestation of the glory of Christ's kingdom. As through the ministry of men and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of God's word, Jesus begins to reign in the hearts and lives of men and women, not just in Jerusalem, but to the far corners of the earth. And we know, of course, that the kingdom and the glory of our, our Christ's kingdom will be fully manifested when, when he returns. And as John says, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But, you see, in this passage... Just after Jesus has called his disciples to lay down their lives, to entrust their lives into his hands, Peter, James, and John are given a glimpse of the glory of Christ. They're given a glimpse of the glory that that Christ had with the Father before creation, and they're being given a glimpse of the glory that is yet to be revealed in the gospel. And it's meant to encourage them. It's meant to show them Christ is someone you can absolutely trust and absolutely devote your life to. And so today, as we look at this passage, I have a, I have a dual purpose in view. If, if you are a believer, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ and following him, and I want you to see how this passage is given to strengthen and encourage you as you cling to the cross of Christ And take up the call of discipleship. But then there may be others here who who are thinking about the identity of Christ. And his call to discipleship. And I want you to see that this passage shows you that Jesus is the king of glory. And he demands your allegiance. So there are three things I want to consider in this passage. If you're taking notes. An alteration, a conversation, and a declaration. And so in the first place, Luke tells us about an alteration that took place. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain to pray. And we read that as he prayed, his appearance began to change. Now the sense of the text is, as he was praying, this change took place gradually as he prayed. There was this ongoing alteration. Jesus started praying like an ordinary man with with no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, as Isaiah says. But as he prayed, his appearance changed. His his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. The other gospel accounts speak of Jesus being transfigured, or it's where we get the word metamorphosis from. And when you read all the accounts, you you get the sense that the the, the gospel writers were struggling for language to describe what it is that these disciples saw. Uh, Mark will speak about Jesus' clothing being bleached white as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, 
It goes without saying, this wasn't something that ordinarily happened when Jesus prayed. Jesus ordinarily looked like any other man. Seeing him, people didn't immediately think that, wow, there's something special or unique about this individual. But, but here on this mountain, as Peter will later say, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They, they saw the blinding light of the glory of God shining forth from the person of Jesus Christ. This, this white light radiating from the very being of Jesus Christ. So much so that his clothing changed in appearance. His, his very clothes began to glow with the, with the glory of God radiating forth from Jesus. And it transformed his very appearance. Now we, we've seen this kind of thing in the Bible before, haven't we? I, I think the way Luke is telling this story, it, it's meant to draw us back to a time we've seen something like this happen in the Old Testament. You remember Moses. Moses, he used to go up on the mountain and fellowship with God. And when he would return from the presence of God, it's as though his, his appearance was altered. And, and his face, as it were, reflected the very glory of God as he came from the presence of God. But there actually is a very important difference between Moses and Jesus. Because the glory that the people saw from Moses' face was, it was a reflected glory, wasn't it? Moses, the glory coming from Moses' face was like the, the light we see reflected from the moon. But when the, when the disciples looked at Jesus, they were looking right at the sun. What does Luke say in verse 32? They saw his glory. Glory of the only Son of God. It's Jesus' glory here that shines like the, the bright sun. And it's his divine majesty that is bursting forth here. And the disciples were being given a glimpse of the glory that belonged to Christ from all eternity. And the glory that would be increasingly revealed as Jesus marched to Jerusalem. And lay down his life for the salvation of his people. My friends, as we just think about, you know, Luke makes no application here. So what, what is an application we could make of this? I, I think we need to say, here is something that the church desperately, desperately needs more of today. To behold and to gaze upon the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. I think here's where we can often be so weak. And Jesus can often be a small Jesus in our lives. He's insignificant. He's, he's irrelevant to most of our lives. But I want to say that what we need more than anything then is to gaze upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's why, dear friends. Because if we are ever going to grow as Christians if we are ever going to grow in our faith and grow in discipleship as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, then what we need more than anything in the Christian life is to gaze upon the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, somebody might say, well, how is that possible? 
Right? How, how is it possible for us to behold the glory of Christ? After all, Jesus isn't physically with us. That's true. He's in heaven. We're on earth. But it's not true to say that believers presently cannot behold the glory of Christ. Actually, Paul, uh, Paul couldn't say what he does in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I want you to listen carefully to this verse. Paul says, and we all, talking about believers who have had their eyes opened to see the identity of Jesus Christ and his power to save. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now just notice a few things about that verse. Now, the first interesting thing is the word transformed is the word metamorphosis, the same word that Matthew used to describe the alteration that Jesus underwent in his transfiguration. And Paul is saying, just like Christ, believers are being uh, might be making up a word here, metamorphosed. They're being transformed. Then Paul says believers are being transformed from one degree of glory to another by beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice, Paul is not talking about something future there. Yes, it's true that one day we will see him as he is, and on that day we will be like him. But Paul is saying right now, presently, believers are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next by gazing upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the Lord Jesus Christ is set forth, when the Lord Jesus' word is proclaimed, when the Lord Jesus comes to us and beyond the words of a mere man begins to speak directly to us, we are beholding his glory. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he is transforming the lives of his people, conforming them to the likeness of Christ. And so again, I say this, this is what the church needs more than anything else in this world. Because what is Paul saying? The more we meditate, the more we fix our eyes, the more we study, the more we hear about, the more we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, we behold the glory of the Lord. And we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And you see, this is why, this is why being in the word of God is so important for Christians. And this is why being in church is so important for us as Christians. Because it's here that together we are gazing upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is at work. If I can put it this way, transforming ugly caterpillars into beautiful butterflies. That's what he's doing. He's conforming us to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so Luke, Luke shows us that Jesus Christ is worthy of our trust and devotion by describing this alteration. And then secondly, he tells us about a conversation. Jesus was joined by two conversation partners, two great men of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. 
Now, I don't think this is the focus of the passage, but let me just say this as, as an aside. It's interesting to think about what these two teach us about life after death, isn't it? After all, here is uh, one man who died, one man who had been taken up to heaven about 700 years prior to this, and they're not dead, they're alive. They're standing there with Jesus and they're conversing, they're recognizable. And Moses died about 1,500 years ago. I think in a nutshell, this passage is implicitly saying to us at least that our God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and he, he will not abandon his people to the grave. But, but the more central question here is why are Moses and Elijah here? And why, why have they been permitted to, uh, to leave the confines of, of heaven on this night and stand on this mountain with Jesus Christ? And I think Luke actually gives us the answer uh, in verse 31. And it will become, if you have an ESV Bible, the, the reason will become even more clear if you look down at the footnote of verse 31. But it says, They appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they met with Jesus in order to speak to him about the departure that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Now that's a strange way of speaking, isn't it? We don't usually talk about accomplishing a departure, do we? When I went to Florida a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago for class, Kelsey didn't call me up after arriving and say, did you accomplish your departure? Right? Um, so that should, that should clue us into the fact that there is something more going on here than merely a conversation than about Jesus' exit from Jerusalem and his death on, on the cross. I, I think Luke is telling us that they spoke to Jesus about the way in which the greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament, the Exodus, led by Moses under God, bringing the people out of slavery and bondage to worship and serve the Lord, that that great redemptive event, the Exodus of the Old Testament, was but a picture of the greater Exodus that Jesus Christ was about to accomplish when he went to Jerusalem. You remember... Uh, the Exodus story. The, the people of God were, were crushed under the iron fist of Pharaoh. Slaves in Egypt, in bondage, helpless. And they, they cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard their cry and he sent Moses to deliver them. But just before their departure from Egypt, the Lord instituted the Passover meal. Telling, telling households to take a lamb and and slaughter that lamb and, and take its blood and put it on the doorpost so that when the angel of death came through and claiming the life of the firstborn of every household, that household was spared. The Lord passed over that, those households. And then after that, that event of judgment, the Lord brought his people out of Egypt. He brought them to himself that they might worship and serve him. In, at Mount Sinai. And that great redemptive event was a picture of what the Lord Jesus was about to do at Jerusalem. The exodus from Egypt where God delivered his people from slavery and bondage was an illustration 
of the exodus that would actually deliver God's people from a far more deep-seated slavery. And that is slavery to sin and slavery to death and slavery to Satan and to hell itself. And so Jesus was going and the exodus that he would accomplish delivers his people from our enemies. And so Moses and Elijah, I think they, they spoke to Jesus about the, the great exodus. That is the word in the Greek, the great exodus that he was about to accomplish. They spoke about what would happen. They spoke about the sacrifice of the lamb. They spoke about the way in which the shed blood of Jesus Christ would be a covering for his people. They spoke about the way in which God's judgment would fall upon God's firstborn son. And that Jesus would be not only firstborn son, but the slain lamb of God. And that through his death and through his resurrection, the people would be brought out. The people would be delivered from deep-seated, lifelong slavery to sin and Satan and death. And so they spoke to him about the cross. They they spoke to him about how the judgment of God would, would fall upon him I think in order to encourage him because by the shedding of his blood, his people would be set free. His people would be delivered and brought to the Lord of of grace. And so I think they spoke about the, the real exodus that would set God's people free into real spiritual liberty. And Jesus was going to accomplish this exodus in his death and resurrection. Now, of course, this conversation, it tells us more than, than, than that because Jesus is conversing with, with Elijah and Moses, two great representatives of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and they are standing with the one to whom the law and prophets pointed. And so they are here as a, as a testimony and their presence validates the idea that Jesus is the, the culmination the fulfillment of all of the plans and the purposes and the judgments of God, they all come down to Jesus Christ. And he is the one who saves his people and leads his people into the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. That's kind of shocking, I think, while we read this conversation took place, Peter, James, and John fell asleep. And usually we're quick to kind of jump on them. How could they do that? I think maybe we should slow down and err on the side of sympathy here and recognize perhaps they've been overwhelmed by the news that their master is is actually going to go and die. And perhaps they have physically been overwhelmed by the sight of divine glory Whatever's going on here, Peter, uh, when he fully awakes, as Moses and Elijah are beginning to depart, Peter blurted out, it's good that we are here. You know, let's, let's make this arrangement permanent. We'll build a tent for you, Jesus, and a tent for Moses. Actually, a tabernacle is what he's saying. We'll build a tabernacle, each one for each of you. And if I can put it this way, I think what Peter was doing is, is he, he wanted... He wanted to hang on to this mountaintop experience. 
He, he wanted this moment to last. But of course, Peter's response is, is, is wrong. It's deeply misplaced. Luke tells us he didn't know what he was saying. He, he wanted the moment to last, but he was failing to grasp what Jesus had begun to teach his disciples, that he had to suffer, and he had to die, and he had to rise again. The transfiguration was just a glimpse of lay what, what was beyond the cross for Jesus and beyond the cross of discipleship for those who follow the Lord Jesus. I think Peter is struggling to, to really work into his mind and into his heart this reality that the cross is the way to glory and that death is the way to life. He had yet to fully understand what we talked about several weeks ago, the necessity of the cross. That without the cross, there there would be no redemption. There would be no eternal life and there would be no hope of glory for the people of God. And so I don't think we should beat up on Peter because frankly, I think sometimes we think just the way that, that Peter does. Sometimes... In our hearts, don't we? We want glory without a cross. Uh, we want heaven without Calvary. And, but Jesus has been, he's been insisting that he must go to Jerusalem because our condition is so, is so serious, it's so helpless, it's so dire, that the Son of God had to go to Jerusalem and there be crucified and cursed on a tree. That's how serious our need was. And so the only way Jesus is teaching his disciples, the only way to dwell in the presence of divine glory is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that means Peter needed to come. And it means you and I need to come to full terms with the fact that we are guilty, helpless, needy sinners. And the only thing that can change our guilty status and give us the help we need is Jesus Christ crucified and raised. And Peter still needed to come to fully understand that. And so he didn't realize what he was saying. He, he had heard Jesus talk about the necessity of the cross, but he didn't fully understand it. And so as Peter is speaking, there's a divine intervention, isn't there? The Lord actually interrupts Peter. While Peter is saying these things, the Heavenly Father comes and makes this great declaration in verses 34 and 36. See, a cloud comes down. A cloud we've seen before in the Bible. A cloud that that filled the tent of meeting and the tabernacle. The cloud that people called the Shekinah glory cloud of God. And Luke gives you a little clue here if you're paying attention about what's going on because he uses the very same word that he used to describe the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary in order that she would supernaturally uh, be with child. So this is, this is God coming down. It's a Trinitarian picture, just like Jesus' baptism. And from the Shekinah glory cloud, the Heavenly Father speaks. And what does he say? This is my Son, my Chosen One, Listen to him. Actually, each of those phrases is like a a vista into Old Testament truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is my son. 
takes us back to passages like Psalm 2, where the father is setting up his son upon the throne to rule over the nations, and the nations are called to kiss the son, to bow down before him and trust and worship him. This is my chosen one. The title given to the one that uh, the suffering servant songs are all about, that we love so much in Isaiah. The suffering servant who would be uh, put to death for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities in order that we might be forgiven and share in his righteousness. And so the father says, listen to him. You remember Deuteronomy 18. And the Lord had promised that he was going to raise up a prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. And the people would be held accountable for listening or not listening to him. And the father is declaring here, here is that great prophet, my one and only son. He is the one you need to listen to. He, he is the one who, who must shape your thinking and your life. He is the one you must trust and follow, the Lord is saying. So as we think about how should, how should we respond to all of this, very briefly here, I actually think this story shows us in a dramatic way how we should respond to this passage. Because when the Heavenly Father finished speaking, Glory cloud went away. Moses and Elijah are there no more. And what's left? Jesus stood before them alone. Jesus stood before them alone. And I think with the words still ringing in their ears, listen to him. It is a dramatic picture, isn't it? That at the end of the day, this is what it means to be a Christian. To trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to listen to him. And that means, that means friends, we, we listen to his words of life and believe. Recognizing that he is alone the one who possesses the words of eternal life. We listen to the words of the Lord and we do what he says. We listen to the, the words of the king and we worship and we bow down at his feet. We listen to him when he says that our need is a crucified and risen savior. And that there is no other way to God but through the cross of Jesus Christ. No other way to be delivered from sin and Satan and death and, and hell. And to be brought into the new heavens and the new earth. But to follow Jesus as the people of Israel followed Moses out of Egypt. And so at the end of the day, I think as we think about Luke chapter 9 in, in a big picture, it's all about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple. And at the end of the day, it all boils down to this. You listen to Jesus and you do what Jesus says. Well, what does Jesus say to us, dear friends? Remember the, remember the comfortable and challenging words of Jesus? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You who are, you are depending on your self-righteousness as the grounds of your righteousness before God. You who are looking to yourself or other things for, for right standing before God. You who are crushed 
under the the weight of man-made religion, come unto me and I will give you rest. And what does he say after that? Come unto me and I will give you rest and then take my yoke upon you for my burden is easy. And you'll find rest for your souls, Jesus says. And so the Heavenly Father speaks to us today from this passage and he says, listen to Jesus and do what he says. My friends, I wonder, do you hear beyond the words of a preacher today, Do you hear the words of Jesus calling you to entrust your very life into his hands? I can make this promise to you today that if you do, he will never, ever let you down in this life and for all eternity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to see more and more of the glory of Jesus Christ and to be conformed to his image. And help us all to, down to the last one here today. Please, Father, down to the last person, let us entrust our lives to Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.